Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Nicole Arginio, Recovery Coach at the Oriana House. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us in today. Nicole has two years of experience as an addiction recovery coach. So, Nicole, can you tell us a little bit about how you arrived here in this profession? Yeah, um, I started out uh, as a kid. I was um, a lot of back problems, medical problems, things of that nature, and I uh, went to the doctor's. Um, doctors prescribed me, uh, uh, opiates, prescription opiates. Um, how old were you? I was about 13. Yeah, I was 13. Um, they started prescribing me opiates for my back. I had a herniated disc, things of that nature that were hereditary. And I took them over the years, uh, as years went on, um, I ended up becoming addicted to them and needed them on a daily basis in order to function. What were you um, taking? Do you recall? It started out Vicodin, uh, and then that didn't work anymore, and I went to Percocet, um, and then that didn't work anymore, and I went to um, something called Roxycodone, um, which is Percocet that doesn't have Tylenol. Um, and those were like the highest that I had went. Um, started out you know, low dosing, taking it here and there, then it became, like I said, consecutive consecutive but I had to take it all the time never stop um, and then it became that that doctor wasn't giving me enough to many, be out of the pain how many milligrams were you taking at that time we're talking about roxycodone right the roxycodone yeah that yeah. was towards the end of uh, when I before I before I went into heroin okay um, so I was uh, prescribed 30 milligram 150 I was also prescribed 15 milligram 150. And I also have this thing called anxiety um, that I played on a whole lot when it came to doctors. Um, and I was prescribed 120, um, two milligrams Xanax. And that was in a month. Wow. Yeah, that was a lot. It was completely unnecessary. Um, but in my my mind, it wasn't because I was still hurting. And, and I wasn't hurting. Um, my brain was telling me I was. That was my excuse to continue to use or get more. Wow. Yeah. So what next? Um, I, you know, did that for a while. Uh, and then I was introduced to 
um, heroin because, like I said, that was that's a lot of narcotics to be legally prescribed. Um, I couldn't get them to give me any more. So you wanted to increase I wanted to the increase, amount that yeah. you were prescribed. Mm-hmm. And they said, whoa. Yeah, and they were like, eh, we can't do that. Um, of course, I sought out the doctors out there that, um, you know, I don't blame doctors for my addiction. And I'll tell you why. Because they don't know what they don't know. All they know is when I walk in and I tell them that this is the amount of pain I am in and this is the problem I'm having, they know how to treat it with what they were schooled, you know, how they were schooled, how they were taught. So they go down this, they don't know, you know, until I tell them, well, I'm abusing this. Most of them actually, you might be surprised to hear this, have not had addiction training. No, I'm not surprised. There's less than 1%. I just read an article on that today, just as an aside. Less than 1%. Yeah, it's not even shocking because they don't know, Um, you know, so that's where I played on that. Um, That was my in. Because I know you don't know. And if I don't tell you that I'm um, abusing them uh, and not taking them correctly, then you don't know that. You just think I'm in pain and you're trying to help me. Yeah. Don't know any different. So how'd you get into heroin then? I started um, running with a div- you know, diverse group of people. Uh, you know, the um, selling of this pill and selling that and illegal, you know, doing a lot of illegal things. So you were selling the pills? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. Why were you selling the pills? Um, because I needed money. Uh, you know, I needed money, but yet I needed to suffice my addiction. Um, but I had three kids that I had to raise. So this money was to support the family as well as to support your, I'll call it, lifestyle. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, so I got in with them, and then what happens is is uh, the addiction is huge, and I need more, but yet I'm trying to get rid of, and I'm the Rob Peter to pay Paul thing. Um, so I was introduced to heroin um, from a uh, what I considered at the time what a friend was to me. Um, they introduced me to it. It was cheaper. Uh, it lasted longer. Um, and this way I would be able to uh, manage my lifestyle, my disease of addiction, um, and still, um, have money. So, um, when you first started using heroin, did you shoot? No, I, um, the first time I ever used it, I snorted it. Um, but mind you, I was shooting the Roxy's. Oh yeah. I started doing that with the Roxy's when, uh, another, what I called a friend then had showed me uh, that this is how you could use those. They last longer, they hit quicker type of deal. All right. Let's take a second and timestamp this. Mm -hmm. You started with prescriptions to ease pain when you were 13 years old. Correct. So when you started shooting the Roxy, how old? Uh, Let's say I was 26. 26. Okay. So 13 years later. It was a while, yeah. Okay. Got it. Didn't happen quick for me. Okay. So, proceed. So, um, I did heroin. Uh, The first time I did snort it. Um, I was always, uh, I had that self-delusion of if I was snorting it, I wasn't as bad as everybody else. Um, You know, everybody else that was using a needle and shooting it was way worse than me because I don't do that. I just, even though I was, and this is how crazy my mind works, even though I was shooting the pills... I felt like because I wasn't doing it with the heroin that I wasn't worse than, they were worse than me Mm -hmm. if they did. Um, 
So uh, ultimately, that didn't last long. I ended up uh, injecting the heroin then, um, and that was my life on a downward spiral. So what makes one go to that next step? Is it just, it's the high. The high is so much greater. It's the, yeah, it's so, it's faster. Yeah. Okay. Really, that's all it is. It's, it's faster. It's now. Um, when you take a pill in my mouth, it takes like 15, 20 minutes to kick in. When you snort it, it takes about five or 10. When you inject it, it's now. Um, and that's that instant gratification that I wanted. I didn't want to wait to feel it. Um, so that's how I bypassed waiting, uh, you know, not really thinking about the consequences or what was going to happen from it. You know, that's completely out of my mind. Yeah. What happened next? <clears throat> um, okay. So I started, uh, doing heroin. Things got really bad. My kids were young. Um, they were taken care of and I, and I say taken care of only in one way. And that is they were clothed and fed. Mentally, yes. Yes, by me. Uh, mentally and emotionally, I couldn't be there for them uh, because I didn't have that ability. Um, I made decisions and choices that I look back on now with them during that time that uh, I would never do today. Um, I get to see now that my morals were completely gone. Um, the morals that were instilled in me by my mother, my family, what I believed to be um, good and bad, that was gone. Um, and I accepted that. Um, I got into some trouble legally, um, quite a few times. Uh, that wasn't enough for me. Possession? Um, no, I never got a possession. It was a little bit higher. Okay. I, um, ended up with, uh, trafficking and drugs. Mm. Um, I also ended up with a few receiving stolen properties. Um, and then the last one that brought me to recovery was, um, deception to obtain a dangerous drug. Um... Why was Which, that the last straw? You know, because I had done it for so long. And when I got in trouble that time, I um, had no place to live. My kids were with my mom. I didn't lose custody, but I put them there because they became a problem for my addiction. Um, they became trouble because it was now I had to try and find a way to cover them. Um, get them babysat so that I can run and do what I need to do so they were in my way. And I know it sounds horrible, but that's how I felt and that's what I thought. So that leads us to something that we were talking about just before we started this interview. Mm -hmm. And that is your day-to-day life as a heroin addict. Yes. And what it revolves around. Can you kind of walk us through that, what that looks like? Yeah. Um... To go back, I would wake up in the morning, and I had three kids, so I woke up and I was sick instantly. Didn't matter if I had used an hour ago. Um, my brain told me that I was um, dope sick, and I woke up and I didn't feel well, and I was uh, immediately on the phone um, with what they call the sugar daddies, um, people that I knew I could manipulate. Um, family members that I could make feel sorry for me, um, people that I could lie to to try and get the money that I needed to go to the guy that you know sold me the dope and get my fix. So collectively, all these people that you know, that you know that you can go back and kind of exploit for mm -hmm. to, to get money, mm -hmm. you call them sugar daddies? Um, not everybody. Like there was, um, there was guys that I would manipulate. Okay. I used me being a woman. 
Hmm. I use that. Okay. Um, so there was men that I would manipulate. Um, there are family members though that, um, I made them feel sorry for me or made them feel like my kids needed something. So they would give it to me. Gotcha. Yeah. So I would manipulate, um, and get whatever I needed to get money wise, uh, find somebody to watch my kids or even take them with me. Uh, unfortunately, um, and I would go and I would get it and you would think like that was, that was it and we're good for the day. The kids are in the car? On a few occasions, yeah. I tried to make it to where they weren't. Um, but, you know, uh, this is where honesty is big in recovery and honestly, I had my kids in the car on a few occasions. Not something I'm proud of. Not something that I would, uh, um, you know, make a big you know, like they make it a good thing. It's horrible. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I would never in a million years today do that. And I know what kind of danger I put them in when I did it. But I didn't at the time. All right. So let's move on. So I um, would get that and I'd get my fix and I'd be okay for a few hours. But I can tell you that as soon as I got that fix, I was immediately back into the hustle again of how I was going to get more money. Because now I've got it and I've got the fix, but now I need more. It doesn't stop. It never stops. It never stops. Um, it was exhausting. Exhausting because the just mentally, physically, emotionally, the constant running of who am I going to do next? What do I do next? Who do I steal from? What do I rob? What do I do? How do I get the money to go back? And I just got there and just got my fix. It's just the insanity. So, but part of that was um, energizing for you. Part of the lifestyle you mentioned earlier. Yeah, the addiction. I, I was addicted to the the drugs and the alcohol, but I was addicted to the lifestyle, the constant chaos in my life, the running. If there wasn't chaos, I didn't feel like I was living. I had no emotions because I had suppressed every emotion I had with heroin. So in order for me to feel, I had to feel chaos in my life. The constant running and never stopping. That was how I felt. That was the only way I knew to feel. I didn't want to feel, I didn't want to feel hurt and I didn't want to feel pain. I didn't want to feel sadness. And I didn't really even know what happiness was. So I couldn't even tell you. So how I prevented myself from feeling of any of those emotions is I kept myself busy 24 seven because then in turn, I don't have to think about it. I'm always running. So when did you hit that point where you knew it was time? Honestly, I, I, I um, didn't come to that conclusion on my own. Um, I did try for my family to get sober at one point um, when they figured out there was a problem, which took them a while. How'd they figure that out? Um, my behaviors, um, when I started getting into legal trouble, you know, I was, I was pretty deep in when they figured it out. Let's put it that way. I was very good at hiding it. Mm. Um, so it was, it was pretty deep before they realized it was an issue. Um, so I did try to get sober for them, um, once and I tried to do medically assisted Suboxone. Um, and I feel Suboxone is great. It just didn't work for me. So let's timestamp that. When was that? 2011. Okay. Great. Okay, take it from there. So I, uh, that's how I ended up getting the very last charge that brought me to recovery. I went to Suboxone and I tried to do um, Suboxone at New Destiny in Barberton, I think it is. 
Um, I went there. I went to the counseling. I started the Suboxone. Um, so you're taking it daily, and but you have to do that yourself daily I as an outpatient. It. Yes. They gave me a prescription for a week. They gave okay. me a week's worth prescription. Mm-hmm. I took it probably one day, and the prescription I sold, and I bought heroin because um, it wasn't sufficing the feeling that I had. Um, the the craving, the urge, the, the thoughts that I had, I couldn't get rid of, and it wasn't sufficing it. So my uh, best idea is to sell it yeah. and get what I want. So how long were you – did you do inpatient, by the way? Not at that at point all? yet. Not at that point yet. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you said that you wanted to clean things up and everything, that you want to give it up, and so you saw the doctor and you got a prescription. And I did that for about six months, um, and I passed urine test that had Suboxone in it, even though I wasn't using the Suboxone, I was using the heroin. Oh. Yeah. Urine tests aren't always that fabulous. I, I So how'd you do that? Did you buy? Did you buy urine? Is that how that works? How does um, that work? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have to buy it. I had three children. Oh. Yeah. They were subject to a lot. They were subject to a lot of my disease. Um, if you talk to my kids today, though, it's a completely different story. Yeah, so I've definitely um, made up for those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so um, I passed on my urine test. I was on probation for approximately nine years, and I never dropped dirty. Mm-hmm. But I was using the whole time. Um, and I never got caught. Yeah, we're pretty good. Yeah. If we, And that's my, my biggest thing in recovery when I talk to people is the amount of work I put in to continue to use if I put just a quarter of that into my recovery, I'm I'm good. I'm in good shape. Hmm. Oh, so that's um, profound. Yeah, it's a lot. So I started uh, did that for about six months, and then I went. I was going to a Suboxone doctor and my pain management doctor, and I got deception to obtain a dangerous drug um, because I was lying to both of them to get both of the Schedule Two drugs. Hmm. Neither one of them knew I was going to one or the other. Hmm. So. Um, I was on probation at the time. I was violated. And they took me to Summit County Jail for 65 days where I uh, detoxed for the first time. Oh, you actually, they had a detox program. No. Oh, no. it was just cold turkey. You just go in and detox. Yeah, yeah. okay. All right. That wasn't very much fun. No. Um, you would think that that would be great and that would be enough to make you want to stop and not do it again. Um, I went in there for 65 days and I did want to stay sober. I got 65 days. I started feeling good. Like, this is great. I had no idea how to stay sober when I walked out, though. So I walked out and I went around the same people in the same places and the same things. So this is 2012? This is 2012. Okay. Um, So I walked out, same people, same places, same things. I started using again. Um, Went to court for the deception to obtain. Was in active use. They put me on probation. I went downstairs and I met my probation officer and told him I'd be back in a week, but I had no intention on coming back. I left and I didn't go back. Uh, To speed it up, I was picked up um, New Year's Eve, so 2012, the end, December 31st, um, and uh, I was arrested. Um, my sobriety date is January 1st, 2013. 
And that's because uh, when they picked me up on New Year's, obviously I was still using at that moment. So I had to wait for 24 hours. Um, so January 1st, I went to jail um, in Wayne County. I sat there for 45 days. The probation officer said that his recommendation at that point, because I had been in so much trouble, was Marysville for 18 months. And my judge said that he wasn't sure why, but he didn't want to send me there just yet. So I ended up going to a place, and I was assessed for a place called SRCCC. What judge, by the way, if I could ask? Um, um, was it a drug court judge? No, it was Wayne County. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, yeah. that's okay. Yeah, that's we're right. in Wayne. Yeah. Um, but he sent me to SRCCC, Louisville, Ohio, uh, Stark Regional Community Correction Center. Uh, that place saved my life. Um, I still wasn't sure about sobriety. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't really know, um, if I could do it. Um, I had beaten myself up for so long and tore myself down to be this weak individual that I wasn't sure if I could do it. But, um, I went to SRCCC. I was there for 121 days. Um, they taught me cognitive life skills, thinking for a change, um, relapse prevention. Um, they taught me Every reason why I did what I did and why I thought the way I thought. This was at the Stark Correctional Facility? Yes. Wow. Uh, it was a blessing because I thought I was alone. I didn't feel like anybody understood the way my brain worked, if that makes sense. Um, I didn't think anybody would ever know how to help me because I had tried everything that I thought was out there and had failed. So I didn't think there was any help. Um, I went there and I was there for 121 days. Um, and I learned how to stay sober. I learned how to enjoy sobriety. I learned how to enjoy being uh, emotional. I, I learned how to cry and be okay with it. Um, and not feel like it was a weakness anymore. Um, that old idea I had in my head, you know, that that was weak. You don't cry. Um, I learned how to love. I learned how to be happy. Um, and when I learned those things, I walked out of that place knowing 110% that I wanted to help somebody else. Because if I could be at the low that I was at and come out where I had came out, I knew that there was many other people out there that could, could benefit. And that led you to your new, your career. My career. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I chose to, um, I started working in a 12 step program for myself um, in that 12 step program, um, I do sponsor, um, girls. Um, so that's how I started, um, before, because I wasn't strong enough in the beginning of my recovery to work a job daily in this profession, um, and maintain my sobriety. And that was my, my most important thing was me and my sobriety. So I started sponsoring first in the 12 step program. Um, where we go through the steps and they can call on us and, uh, you know, they can um, lean on us for uh, suggestions on what to do if this is happening or whatever have you. So I was working in that, working in that field, just nonprofit is how you could look at it. It was no money. I didn't have any expectation of this person besides for them to succeed in recovery. So I started sponsoring girls and I, I gained some strength in my recovery. Um... And I, I decided that I wanted to start working in recovery. 
Um, my journey did begin at um, IBH Addiction Recovery Center. I became a residential supervisor there. Uh, absolutely loved my job. I worked with up to 30 girls every day. Um, and they could come in and lean on me and talk to me and with their struggles and give me all their good things that are happening to them. And uh, it uh, definitely uh, it made me hungry for more. Um, so I then got in touch with my supervisor now, um, Reba McRae. She's an amazing woman. And I seen her at uh, in the recovery community. And we started talking and she started telling me a little bit about what she does. Um, and she was a recovery coach for Oriana House. So I kind of piqued my interest because I wanted to be able to do more um, than what I was just doing. I wanted to do more. I wanted to help more people. And it took me about, I, I worked at IVH for about seven months. And then I applied for the recovery coach position at Oriana House. Um, and uh, it's been a blessing. Um, I did get the job. Um it was the first time that a job and a job interview that I was able to be 110% honest um, and, and talk about my addiction with somebody in order to get a job, um, which I thought that was really, really cool. It made me feel comfortable here. Yeah. You know. Tell us what <clears throat> a addiction recovery coach does. What is that job? Um. The job of an addiction recovery coach, what I do is I motivate, give motivation to my clients when I speak with them. Um, I share my experience. Um, I let them know that I'm in recovery just like they are. Um, I can do things like um, help them gain sober support. So I can take them to a meeting and introduce them to some people um, or to the, the church if that's their path to recovery. Help them find whatever path they're going to go down in order to continue on recovery. Um, and then I walk beside them in it. You know, meet them exactly where they're at. Find out where they're at in their recovery, and I'm gonna I'm gonna meet you there. I'm not gonna try to pull you here because then they, we, we lose them is what happens. Um, and I know that from my own personal experience. So I'm I'm gonna meet them here. We're going to make a, you know, we're going to go over some things and find out what are the barriers in your life that are, are causing you to continue to use or to go back and use again after some little bits of sobriety. Um, and whatever they are, I, I try to find the resources for them to use and utilize in order for them to not have it happen anymore. Um, so I get to take them to 12 step meetings. I get to take them to the heroin walks things of that nature, show them uh, that there are things in sobriety and recovery that we can do that are fun, um, how to have fun in recovery, how to live. So it seems like there's a lot of overlap with a sponsor between coach and sponsor. Is that, it's probably just my impression, um, but what's the difference? Okay. Um, as a sponsor, like with the girls that I work with at home, I walk them through the 12 steps. As a recovery coach, I don't do that because that's not everybody's path to recovery. And I have to identify that not everybody works a 12-step program. So as a sponsor in a 12-step program, I take my girls through a 12 steps. Um, it's more of an interpersonal relationship um, on a different, um, uh, it's a friendship, if that makes sense. The sponsorship. The sponsorship, yeah. yes. Okay. On the recovery coaching, they're my clients, and there is a boundary that we have to set. 
Um, there's a, I, I want you to trust me, but there's not a level of friendship or intimacy or deep um, things that we talk about. It's more on a surface level. How do you maintain that? Because you're so passionate, it would appear, about what you do and really about both disciplines and both roles. Right. Um, I absolutely am passionate about what I do. Um, but I've learned in my life the morals that I had prior to my use and the morals that I've gained in my recovery are um, we have to separate what we do in life. My home life has to be separated from my work life. So my sponsorship life and my recovery program has to be separated from my job. But yet I imply my recovery that I've learned and I give it to those clients. Um, so I have the routes and avenues and the knowledge of the resources um, that I can give to them. But I have to keep it at a, I have to keep a boundary. Yeah. I just have to set that boundary, you know, like this is my job. I love my job. Um, so it makes it a little better, you know, when you love your job. So I love my job and I, I want to help you, but there's a level okay. of where I can go. So let's talk about the training to become a coach. Mm -hmm. Are there any um, relevant aspects of it to share with our listeners there that would be important to note? Um, you know, I, I know that I'm, I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm wrong, two years of recovery by the state of Ohio to get a peer support recovery license. So I have to get a peer support license, which is 40 hours of classroom training. Okay. And you have that. Correct. And mm -hmm. there is, um, webinars, um, that I had to do and complete, um, like peer support introduction, um, trauma-informed care and peer support, things of that nature. So there is a little bit of schooling behind it. Um, I know here at Oriana House, um, when I first was hired, there was 120, if I'm not mistaken, training hours before I could really start doing what I needed to do, um, which is where they trained me in a, a little bit of everything, um, how to have the boundaries, you know, because uh, gratefully I knew that coming in, but uh, if I didn't, they definitely show you how to um, maintain that boundary and what levels there are of um, what we can do and work with a client. Any idea how that is? Is 120 hours of training? Is that a lot? A little? I just don't really, know. it's not a lot. It's not a lot. I mean, it just sounds like it, it seems <laughs> overwhelming at times, but it's really mm -hmm. not a lot. Um, I was able to, because it was 120 hours in the first year of you working for Anna House. Um, I had the 120 hours. I'm not even six months into being an employee here. So really, you get certified, and then after that, I mean, you get your license, and then after that, really, your practical training after that 120 hours is, is really where you really get the meat and potatoes is on the job. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. How would one go about finding the right coach? For me, um, I do, here at Oriana House, I do some of the orientations, the recovery coach orientation group. And at that group, I get to know the, the clients that are there. You know, I, I want to ask them questions and, you know, how did you get here and give me some of your background. Um, because when you work with other recovery coaches, you get an idea of their personality, their um, recovery, their past. So you kind of know each recovery coach. 
Um, so at that orientation, when I do that with the clients, I um, just from them telling me a little bit about themselves, have an idea of who I think can help them the best. Oh, so you play matchmaker. Kind of. I try yeah. as much as I possibly can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, to my ability. And that's, you know, um, um, when my supervisor says you can do this or you can do that. And that's where I go with it. Um, she told me that I could, um, I have like two recovery coaches that work for this program and some that work for this one. So whichever orientation I'm in, it's kind of like, who do you think would help them more? Type deal. Yeah. yeah. So um, I try my best to kind of go there with the personalities and the paths to recovery. Okay. So on average, how long is a coach actively engaged in the recovery for one of their clients? Um, we commit to be a, a recovery coach for them of a minimum of six months. Okay. Um, but they, we can be the recovery coach forever. You know, as long as they need us, as long as they want us um, to help them, we're there. So as a practical matter, how long generally for, or is it across the board? Is there kind of an average rule of thumb? You know, most of our patients, you know, our clients are involved with us for X. Most of them are involved with us about six, seven months. Six, seven months. Okay. Um, you know, depending on where they're at in the recovery. I mean, really, it's it's hard to tell you that because sometimes they come in and, and some of my clients are still in active use. And it's getting them sober. So now we have a little bit of longer path for them, right? Um, and then some of my clients come in and they have some sobriety. But, and it's a little bit shorter for them because they just need help with whatever they need help with, however long it takes us to help them reach that goal. Um, but we instill in them that their recovery is, is uh, they can, they're the only ones that can get it. I can't make them get it. I can't give it to them. I can't do it for them. So it's their own responsibility. Um, so it really depends on them. You know, if they're uh, really willing to do whatever they need to do to reach the goals that they want and they have the motivation, that's great. We're there. It gets done. Um, and they move on with their lives and they become successful. Um, some don't. They come back. But it just depends on the client itself. You know, so it's hard to say what the average is because I work with so many different clients from still in use to not in use to a little bit further in the recovery. Okay. So what's the family's role in all of this from your perspective? So how can the family make a difference in their loved one's recovery? That's a really hard one. Um, I know that my family felt and still does feels a lot of guilt um, for me getting in trouble that I got in trouble, the trouble that I got in. Um, when it had nothing to do with them, but they felt like they, they could have done more. They should have known more. Um, don't be my, my biggest thing is don't be blind. Um, don't blind yourself because you don't want to believe it. Um, which is a lot of what I see with families is they don't want their child to be a drug addict. So if they don't look at it and they don't address it, they're not that. That's not the case. Um, don't be blind. Open your eyes uh, because it is, it's bad. It's bad out here. Um, a lot of people are dying because of it. Um, my best advice is to get involved. We may get so angry when our parents are constantly telling us, you know, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And, we're, you know, we always go with the response of, 
I'm an adult and I know what I'm doing. Um, no, you don't. Absolutely not. I did not. Um, so I encourage the constant nagging. Yeah, we may get mad. Yeah, we may call you names. Yeah, we may get upset with you and fight with you and argue with you about it. But in the end, we're going to be grateful for you. Um, and that's my experience and many others that I know. Um, the tough love. I'm not going to give everything to you. You're going to work for it. Um, my mom did that to me and I'm forever grateful that she gave me the tough love. Instead of giving to me and giving and giving and giving, she cut me completely off. That's when I realized I had a problem. That's when I realized I needed help. But the day I decided that I was going to get help and do this right, my mom was there. So it showed me that she loved me. Very That's good. about the best advice I can give. Yeah. Any final thoughts for our listeners, Nicole? You know, um, We've lost a lot of people um, in a short amount of time, and we're going to continue to lose them if we don't do something about it. Um, and this is where I say get involved. Get involved in the community. Get, get the knowledge of addiction because that is the biggest problem. People fear what they don't know, and a lot of people don't know or understand addiction. Know that the person that you love that's out there acting crazy is not that person. It's the disease of addiction. And until they break away from that, they'll continue to be that type of person. So just give them, give them a chance, you know, and, and if they, if they go back out, don't shun them. Don't put them down. We beat ourselves up enough. We don't need beat up anymore. We're, we're very good at that on our own. Um, you know, lift them up, lift them up and tell them, you know what? It, it, it happened. Let's keep going. Let's move forward. Wow. Thank you, Nicole. Absolutely. We've been visiting today with Nicole Arginio, recovery coach at the Oriana House and also a recovering addict herself. And she's been uh, successfully in recovery for now four years. Four years? Coming up on four years. Coming up on four years. Yeah. And congratulations on thank that. Thank you. It's tremendous. Thank you. And thank you so much for sharing as much as you did today with us. Absolutely. That's, uh, I know that that's not easy and that is really, that's tremendous. Anything I can do to help. Yeah. This is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for joining and listening to this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.